It's another rock and roll bedtime stories bonus episode because we've got bonus. things to discuss. My name's Brian. Hey guys, it's Murdoch. There's so much going on in the world of rock this week, and so this is just another informal discussion covering some headlines. And I think we'll do the mailbag too. Like, let's start with the mailbag. We are the Story Guys at gmail.com. If you want to get involved in the show, uh, I appreciate the note from Chris. Chris wrote us to say, first off, I really enjoy your podcast. It gives me a greater appreciation for some of the bands you talk about in detail. Awesome, Chris. That's kind of the point. Yeah, thanks, man. That and for me to hang out with Murdoch on a regular basis. Uh, Two things, though. On your Kiss episode. Oh, dude, he's coming. He's coming at you with the Kiss facts. So you better be ready. Yeah, this is for me. Uh, you mentioned Ace Freely was overdubbed. It was actually Peter Chris. Your response? Oh, oh, in the movie? His voice was overdubbed by Michael Bell, who has voiced many cartoon characters. So yes, yeah. in the movie. Yeah, that that does make sense. I thought the Ace was Ace's voice was overdubbed too. I did not go back and fact check this because I knew it was your mistake, and I just wanted Chris to have your goat so we can check that but i'm gonna assume chris knows what he's talking about because it's very specific so chris as soon as we got uh it was called video mania as soon as there was a vhs vcr place to rent movies in my in my hometown i was renting the shit out of that stuff (laughs) and so i rent that kiss animalize video 84 from cobo hall in detroit i watched that thing billions of times but I only watched Phantom of the Park like a couple of times because it was just, it was horrendous. It's such a terrible movie. But I remember thinking it was kind of funny. And then when I watched it in college, I probably was never sober. I'm assuming I never made a sober decision to watch that movie. So, um, but Chris, thanks. Oh, he, um, he's not done. Pr- he's not done. He's oh, got more. I'm, I'm ready. Okay. So the other thing he says is that Nine Inch Nails played Woodstock in 94 in the mud, not 99. Oh, that is right. Yeah. Yeah. I messed that up. I didn't even think about where Nine Inch Nails was in 94 career-wise. And Chris, I'm lucky if I remember 94 or 99 in general, both of those years. (laughs) Uh, Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for that short leash, mom and dad. And Chris ends the note by saying, keep up the great work. So we'll we'll take it. I told him uh, privately that it was definitely all your fault. Those are all things you messed up. You know, we can take constructive uh, feedback. We appreciate it. And you can do it, too. We are the story guys at gmail.com. So now let's get to the headlines. This is like like current events, man. There's a lot going on. We should start with Charlie Watts. I saw the Stones in person before, and I've watched... So many, the Stones and so many things. I've seen Stones concerts on big screens, like in the movies or whatever. And it is true. What, like, uh, it's the metronome. Like, he is the Rolling Stones. Well, well and he a jazz drummer, right? I mean, that's how he started. Yeah, they, could, they couldn't afford him initially because he yeah. was, I don't know, it's like five pence a week or something, whatever, but he already had a gig. Yeah. Um, but he also did. Did you know that the first instrument that he ever got was a banjo? No. Yes. Did he continue to play it? Like, did he just bust out the banjo? No. No, he he couldn't get his. You know the the fingering and everything was just kind of weird, and he took it apart, and it became a snare drum. <laughs> Ergo. <laughs> Charlie Watts. (laughs) So there is a famous rock and roll bedtime story about Charlie Watts. We hadn't gotten to it yet. I think we can cover it here. 
Uh, I mean, this is the story that if you've read any press about his passing, this story is like in the articles because it has become so legendary in association with him. The interesting thing about it is like a lot of the things we discuss on the show, it has gotten a little bit obfuscated as to when it actually happened and some of the details. There are different versions of this. Keith tells a, a, a version of it in life. There's a version of it in a, a journalist that followed them around for a while. He has a book um, called Under My Thumb, I think, and there's a version of it in there that's slightly different. There's a great piece in Vulture uh, today or yesterday yeah. that you sent me that's fantastic, and it tells this story. Yeah, the piece in Vulture, which we'll share in the sh- show notes, probably is great because it's written by Mike Edison, who wrote the book called Sympathy for the Drummer, why Charlie Watts matters. Yeah. Uh, as it feels definitive, and he's got a lot of different info. And to give you guys a time frame, it's when none of us really were listening to the the Stones. So if you <laughs> if you think about Undercover of the Night and uh, uh, One Hit to the Body and and eighty four, like went like in the. So that's when this was. Uh, so, yeah, this is also like during the time that Jagger had negotiated a deal. Keith had gotten clean and Jagger yeah. had negotiated a deal kind of behind everyone else's backs for solo records. And then they found out about the solo records and lose their minds. So things yeah. are just super duper high tension and they all go out. And the the detail in this version of the story that's so funny is that even though they're fighting all the time and they, they're really not getting along... They're going out to dinner, and Keith loans Mick his jacket. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I I didn't know about the jacket being a pivotal part. I, like, it's uh, the jacket Keith got married in, apparently? Yes. Is the story? Yeah. That That is true. They come back to the hotel. Charlie hasn't been with them. And Mick famously, this is the part that's always the same, regardless of the version of the story that you hear, is that Mick calls Charlie's room and says, where is my emphasis on my where is, where is my, my drummer. drummer yeah and and, and yeah. at this point in the band everyone's mad at mick anyway and his egocentricism and so it just makes things very weird so jagger gets these this solo record deal like three record deal whatever and she's the boss is the first one and there's this quote that keith <laughs> told a journalist and he said that that record, he said, it's kind of like Mein Kampf. Like everyone has it, but like no one listens to it. And I thought, wow, it's it's one thing to like talk about your best friends, like a piece of uh, an album they had and, and really compare it to, to hit, uh, think the thing that Hitler wrote. Um, that's pretty heavy. He has all sorts of funny names for Jagger. Do you know that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw that, too. <laughs> Keith tells Jagger not to do this, but he calls Charlie's room. He says, where's my drummer? Different versions of the story say that that part of this was like Jagger wanted to play music at like three o'clock in the morning. There's a version of this where somebody says it happened like during a during a uh, recording session for Beggar's Banquet or something. Yeah. And, and hey, b- before we get to the, I mean, the crescendo of this story, one thing that I didn't know about Charlie Watts and... You know, I mean, the thing is, is that he is the anti-hero, the anti-rock star. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very he, important part of this story, actually. He literally is the anti-rock star. So he got married at 65, and he avoided all the girls, 
and he's been sketching his hotel rooms every night that he goes on tour. <laughs> also, and uh, you know, earlier in the career, he for did thirty for thirty or forty years. He, however long he didn't, he hadn't done it the entire time, but he did it for a long time. He didn't go to Paris with them to record Exile, and you know, during that whole period is is just a period of excess for the Stones, kind of in the in the story of the Stones, right? And right, right. he wasn't even with them during that time. They hang up the phone, and 20 minutes later, Charlie knocks on the door. And dressed answers. In, dressed in a suit. A, a Yeah, a Seville robe suit with the tie. I just, just picture that, because what Some, it sounds like is he got out of bed and got dressed in a suit. Someone someone today, I, I read this letter where they were someone that had met Charlie, they were just re- talking about working with him, and someone said, man, he smells so good. <laughs> he's like clearly like you know, like when he's out of he dress he dresses up for things or whatever. And Keith mentioned that when he answered the door, that he's in the suit and the tie, and he said he had cologne on. Oh, that's so funny, man! Um, so and then and, and then what happens? He pushes past Keith. He goes to Mick. He picks him up basically by the collar and says, "Don't you ever call me your drummer?" And then he. Pitch, he hits him in the face. He punches him. And when he punches him, this is the uh, the added portion of this story that this guy who wrote the book includes in the vulture piece. When he punches him, there's smoked salmon behind him on a table <laughs> next to a window. So just picture this. And he pushes him into the salmon. Mick starts to go through the window almost. like yeah. So he's in Keith's special jacket. Going Keith's- to the canal below. That's what it is. About to fall into the canal below the hotel in Amsterdam in this jacket, salmon flying everywhere, almost out the window. Uh, it, it's it's a marvelous story, and I gotta say, if you're gonna be known for one crazy antic, punching Mick in the face because he's being an a hole is like a fantastic thing for you to, to be in every single obit the day after you die. So hats off, it, Charlie. Keith calls Mick Brenda and Her Majesty. And Charlie Watts went downstairs and punched Brenda in the face. <laughs> Spencer Eldon is 30 years old. He says Nirvana engaged in child pornography when the band used a picture of him naked on the cover of Nevermind. No, they they didn't. The photographer and the record label did. Well, um, and there's 15 people. There's 15 people named, including yeah. the estate of Cobain, Dave Grohl, Chris, Courtney Love, and... Geffen Records. There's two pieces of information I need, Brian. So one, clearly, a parent or guardian or parents or guardians signed a release or signed something to allow the photograph to be used. Yeah, they did. So there was a guy taking pictures at this pool. I I, I guess maybe he was saying it was going to be for the album cover. It seems like it was like a shoot and they were just using babies that were coming in and then the band looked at a whole bunch of them and chose this one. So his parents got paid 200 bucks. Also, I want to know oh, the second thing. I want to know if he has a tattoo of of, of the album cover on, on himself. Like, is there... <laughs> Does he have a does he have a tattoo of himself with the wiener? Does he have a recreation of it in his, on his body or in his home anywhere? Because so, if he does, it makes it difficult to to argue the thing. I read something today, Brian. So I, I need you to tell me whether this was disinformation or someone being funny. Some and it's just someone said one of the reasons he even mentioned that he 
he was scarred by the entire thing is that he would go on dates and girls would ask him ask him if he got royalties or anything from the record and he'd say no and like it ruined his personal life. Oh my god, really? I have not seen that, but I've not I've not been too deep in this. I've been looking mostly at the New York Times piece. I read it and I just started laughing. You know, and and that I is sort on, of funny. On, on to something else. So I didn't know if I was just reading someone being funny or if like if he had actually said that recreating it. Okay, so, so there, I mean, the, the lawyers are all over this. We don't want to be in a position where we're only going to consider one case criminal because in the other, the child didn't think it was a big deal at the time. That is coming from a professor of law who they consulted for this article. There, there's also I read the reason that someone said that the case doesn't hold up on the sheer argument alone is that it's not pornography. Nudity of a child is not the definition of pornography. The typical child pornography that is being seen in law enforcement and pursued in the courts is violent. Children are young and it's graphic. Right. So, so the thing that he's arguing is it's they're not based on the law. It's it's not considered the, the well. Same. There are factors under federal law that allow a judge or a jury to determine whether a photo of a minor constitutes a lascivious exhibition of their genitals. Quote unquote. Did you know that the story goes that Cobain? actually said we can cover it up with a sticker but let's make the sticker say if this bothers you you're clearly a pedophile <laughs> no i didn't that's that's actually a, yeah that's actually a thing though there was a discussion before the album came out about about actually doing that issuing the album with a sticker over it because i guess people were real edgy about whether or not they should do it so there's actually a part in the story that is buried at the bottom of it that i think really says a whole lot about whether or not this is legit at all. He said that his feelings about the cover began to change, quote, just a few months ago when I was reaching out to Nirvana to see if they wanted to be part of my art show. Mr. Eldon said he was referred to managers and lawyers. Quote, why am I still on their cover if I'm not that big of a deal? This is, he's mad at them. For, for not yeah. promoting his art gallery. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, they, that's what you take from that, right? And, like, the New York Times doesn't, they don't go after that. They just let that sit at the bottom of the, I mean, that's, like, way far in, 75% of the way in to this long piece about all the details of this case. There's the quote where the guy basically says, this is an anger suit. I'm pissed off because... Yeah. And now my feelings have changed. No, they haven't. You're mad at them because they're not per- they're not doing you a favor. So his his parents got two hundred dollars. It is pretty get, crazy. It is pretty crazy that the parents only got two hundred bucks. I mean, I think that's actually fairly standard when you like. And, I mean, standard, this was just yeah. a band that they had no idea this. I mean, Bleach had done okay. They had no idea this was going to be one of the biggest albums of all time. I mean, you make a list of the biggest rock albums of all time. This is in the top five, right? It's it's now up there with it's in the top ten obviously so but it, it's it's a huge deal and and the thing that my favorite one of my favorite things to go down a wormhole in YouTube and there's very finite amount of these things but it's so much fun is to go and watch Nirvana's fall European tour of ninety one where you actually see them play playing places where like Nevermind has it come out and then you oh, see yeah. them playing where Nevermind's been out a week. Yeah. And you see them playing somewhere where they've been the the album's been out 2 weeks 
and they start to play Teen Spirit, and the whole place turns into a washing machine, and everyone <laughs> loses it. I think they should settle and give him money. Yeah, I mean, no, I don't think all fifteen of them need to give him one hundred and fifty grand, but I, you know, I it, it would make sense for the record label to make this go away. Speaking of Geffen Records, have you watched the uh, David Geffen documentary on Netflix? Yeah, how weird that you asked that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hey, I, I don't want to, that's not what we're here to talk about, but I do want to say I never knew that basically he bet his entire life on Laura Nero. Like, I did not know that. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, knew, I knew about it because I had seen this documentary before you, and then real recently I walked in the room and, and I looked on TV and I asked my wife, like, what are you watching? Because I'm watching the David Geffen documentary. And I was like... And I just plopped down and watched it again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and she she completely uh, screwed him over. And that's how he became driven and became more like a super powerful Well, person. the other amazing part of that documentary that only lasts for like five seconds is the conversation about him and Clive having it out over who gets to own Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Mm. And, and Clive yeah. looks at the camera and says... Well, I was going to get uh, Poco, and at the time, Poco seemed like a better idea. I understand now that's probably not what people think, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> when I hear Poco, I always think of the Simpsons episode where uh, uh, Willie, it's Willie, Willie, really Willie Nelson's voice. And he and it's the Grammys, and it's just like you hear like da da, and he goes, "Thank you, Taco, for that tribute to Poco," <laughs> or something like that. I don't even like it's so close. It's something. Uh, if you but also, but also, hey, the the going back to Charlie to Charlie Watts and salute to Charlie Watts. Uh, there's a Simpsons episode, uh, and I had to look it up when it was, and I can't remember the exact year. But it's in in Lisa's room. She has a steel wheelchairs poster instead of the steel wheels to her. It's a steel wheelchairs poster. And and buddy, that was over thirty years ago. Listen, man. Listen, man. They had a run. They did a few shows, made a few albums. Good for them. I mean, we literally did just like briefly mention that they had like a whole decade of albums that suck that nobody listened to. And they're still like considered the first or second greatest band of all time, depending on who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so good. Good for them. I mean, you know, there's only a few artists that have really done that at the uh, the capacity that they have done it, the quantity. I mean, there's the Stones and there's Dylan, right? I mean, the Beatles don't have that big of a discography, um, and, and very few other bands rise to that kind of level. So you've, they're they're really it. They're in their own class. You can count Guns N' Roses discography on one hand. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Wow. Uh, okay, if you have something to say about either of these stories or anything else for that matter, we are the story guys at gmail.com. Go ahead, send yeah, us a note. And Chris, you can send more emails if I cannot remember years correctly, because that is just a, for the whole purpose of this vehicle as being entertainment. False is awful. So, uh, you can that's where you send the emails to folks <laughs> well all right we'll be back next week with another episode uh we'll dig into something good i promise uh in the meantime what do we keep doing keep telling stories <laughs>